Second Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in our hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. When I was a kid going to school, I remember a couple of times when the, the teacher had had a particularly bad day. Uh, the regular naughty kids on that day seemed to be extra naughty. Uh, and then the kids who are usually mostly okay but were sometimes a little bit easily led, well, they were being led by the naughty kids that day and so they were misbehaving a little bit. I'm sort of seeing a bit of a grimace on, on Miss Lee's face. I think she's understanding days like this. But then there was kids that were usually pretty good kids but they were sort of getting a little bit emboldened and getting a little bit cheeky because of everything else that was going on. But then there was the goody-goodies. And, well, they're just always the same, aren't they? They just always stay the nice little angels that they are. Now, which category do you think I was in? Which category? Come on. Cheeky. You think, oh, oh. no. I was actually a goody-goody. 
Now, I know some of you might find that hard to believe and some of you go, well, obviously you were. Um, th those people who know me best will say, obviously you were a goody-goody. If you don't believe me, I can actually show you my report cards. My mother kept them. Uh, some kids would lose their report cards on the way home. I was very, very pleased to share my report cards with my mum and she's passed them on to me. But I remember on one of these days, the teacher was having a particularly bad day because the kids were particularly naughty. And so she announced at lunchtime that the whole class was going to have to stay in for a detention over lunchtime. Now, as a goody-goody, I felt the injustice of this. Um, it, th there was a few of us who had not done anything wrong. That they'd been good kids, but they'd, they'd just been caught together in the, the, the collective group. And this collective group of students was out of order, and so it was decided that the whole class was going to have to stay in. Anyway, I think that's a little bit like what's going on here. We've been studying what we know as Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, but it's actually the fourth letter that, that he wrote to them. Um, but it's, there's only two that remain in existence today. And up until now, in this letter, he's been hammering the false teachers in the church and, and those who have been following them. And the flavour of the letter has sort of been lumping the whole church together. And so it sort of seems like Paul's putting the whole church in the naughty corner. You've all been very naughty people, um, doing the wrong thing, following the wrong people. And, but when we get to, to today's reading in chapter 7 we realise that this isn't the case at all. The, the false teachers and, and the ones who are continuing to follow them are by no means in the majority. There's plenty in that church who either never followed the false teachers or they repented um, after, they, after it was pointed out. You see, Paul's already been working with them on this. He's, he's he got word that things weren't going so well, so he paid them a visit. And in chapter 2, he refers to that as the painful visit. It didn't go well. And so after he left them, he felt he needed to write a letter to, to, to get them to, to pull them back into line. And he refers to that letter as the severe letter. He said some really harsh things to them in that letter. We don't have that letter anymore. I wouldn't be surprised if they tore it up into little bits and burned it because it was, it was pretty hard on them. It was a letter that caused them grief. It was a letter that caused them a lot of pain. But when they got that letter, the majority of the church took notice of it. And they repented of their actions. They, they repented of the things that they'd been doing wrong. And that's what we're reading about today in chapter 7. And so the flavour of the letter sort of changes here. As one commentator points out, in the first section, Paul was an apologist. That means he's defending the faith and he's claiming his authority as an apostle to teach the truth and to point out the lies. He's defending the faith. But now he becomes more like a pastor and he's admonishing his flock. He's urging them to do something. And verse 2 sets the tone for that. what that is. He says, make room in your hearts for us. It's like, even though they've repented from following these false teachers, at some level, they haven't 
fully reconnected with Paul and his fellow missionaries. It's, it's like they're still holding them off at arm's length. And the way that they're doing that becomes evident from what we've studied over the last few weeks. Over the last few weeks, we've been seeing how Paul has been urging them to not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. And he's been urging them to separate themselves from things that defile. And he's been saying things to them like, go out from their midst, be separate from them. And in the context of what this whole letter is about, it's obvious that he's talking about these people in the church who are doing the false teaching and, and who are causing all of the trouble. And yet they're still maintaining fellowship with these false teachers and their followers. They're letting them coexist in the church. And these are the ones who have been, they've basically been like, they've seen Paul as their enemy. And they've been causing Paul a lot of grief and criticizing Paul and running him down and turning people against him and leading people astray. And what Paul is saying here is, is until the Corinthian church separate themselves from these false teachers, they're not making room in their hearts for Paul. And I don't think this is just a personal thing. Yes, it is a personal thing. It's, it's probably hurting Paul pretty, pretty much when these people who are running Paul down, they're still accepting them in the church. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think this is a gospel thing. Because here Paul is, he is an apostle upholding the gospel. And while they allow the false gospel to continue in their church, they're holding the true gospel at arm's length. We're not going to fully, fully accept the true gospel because we're still accepting a bit of this false gospel. And so his appeal is make room in your hearts for us. He says, we haven't wronged anyone. We haven't corrupted anyone. We haven't taken advantage of anyone. And what he's doing here is he's outlining the difference between him and the false apostles. And even though, and this is this is an amazing thing, even though they're still holding Paul at arm's length, Paul still loves them deeply. That's it's a church that he loves deeply. And his heart is filled with joy every time he thinks about him. Now, that sort of sets the scene for today's reading. Now, and I'm giving the message today under two headings. And the first headings is Christians comforting Christians. Some people like to have the view that if you're a Christian, life should be absolutely marvellous and everybody's going to love you and, and nobody's going to hate you and nothing should ever go wrong. But apparently the Apostle Paul didn't get the memo on this because he's been persecuted and, and Paul has been suffering greatly. In verse 5, he talks about fighting without and fear within. And with the fighting without, I think he's referring to the physical suffering that he's been having. Just a few little things like stonings and beatings and floggings. These are the sorts of things that Paul had going on. And then he talks about the fear within, and I think that's probably things like the emotional suffering that he'd been going through and, and the worries that Paul has. He, he's suffered greatly. But in all of this affliction, he's filled with comfort and he overflows with joy. Now, how, how does God do that for us? We, we know that God is our source of comfort. But how does God comfort the downcast? 
Well, he does it through his church. God gives comfort to his children by bringing Christians together with other Christians to encourage them. Now, some of the most depressed people I know are almost impossible to comfort because they just want to be on their own. They, they get into this deep, dark pit of depression and they just don't want to see anyone. They don't want to talk to anyone. And it's, it's almost, from an, from an outsider's perspective, it's just like they just want to wallow in their self-pity. And by cutting themselves off from other Christians, they cut themselves off from the comfort of God. They're desperately seeking and desperately wanting God to comfort them. But I don't want to spend time with you lot. And in doing that, they're cutting themselves off from the source of God's comfort. God brings comfort to the downcast by bringing Christians together. And if you are someone who's prone to depression, you might even be in the pit of depression right now. Please don't internalise it and, and don't cut yourself off from other Christians. Meet with other Christians. Fellowship with other children of God because that is how God chooses to give comfort. Through fellowship. Anyway, Paul's had a pretty tough time. Uh, even in his dealings with this very church in Corinth, he's had a really tough time with them. Uh, when he'd visited Corinth, things hadn't gone as he hoped, and so he wrote this severe letter to them. And then, after he'd written that, he was re really worried about, oh, how are they going to respond to that? And so he sent Titus to visit them, to try and ascertain from them, uh, how, did, how did you take that letter? Do you love me? Do you love me not? Um, and so he was then waiting in Troas for Titus. And he was there in Troas and he was waiting and waiting and waiting, but Titus never turned up. And you, you can imagine, can't you? Paul's just getting more and more anxious. Oh, oh I don't know how, how things are going there. Do, what have they done? <laughs> what have they done to Titus? And so he heads on to Macedonia. That must have been a second meeting up point for them. They couldn't just ring on the mobile phone and say, where, where are you? You're nearly here. Oh, you've gone on to that. No, they must have made an alternative meeting point. And so he heads off to Macedonia. And when he got to Macedonia, that's where he said that he found no rest. That's where he said that I've been fighting without and fear within. But then something happened that filled Paul with joy. What was it that filled him with joy? Titus turned up. And the source of joy wasn't just Titus's smiling face. It was a report that he carried. Hey, Paul, things are okay in Corinth. When Titus got to Corinth, Titus was the one who was encouraged. Titus was, was comforted. Um, how did that happen? Well, the Corinthian church received him, received him and, and he met with the Corinthian church and there'd been a big change in them. And they were sorry for the way that they'd treated him and Paul and, uh, sorry, Paul and, and the others in the past. And they were keen to be with them again. Now, did you know one of the greatest sources of joy for a pastor is to see people they minister to and to see people they minister with growing in Christ? That's the biggest joy that a pastor can get. That's the biggest thanks that's the that's the best job satisfaction 
Some of the greatest encouragements that I've had has been when people just contact me out of the blue and say, thank you so much for what you're doing and, and thank you for the teaching that you're providing through Bush Disciples and, and, and then they share with me and, and, okay, that's nice to be thanked, but the best bit is when they share with me about how much they've been growing and when they share with me about what God's been doing in their life. And the encouragement of that can't be overstated. But you know what? The joy doesn't stop with me. I then get to share these stories with you guys. And you hear some of the things that's happening up. And sometimes when I tell some of you what, what God's been doing and people who we don't even know, your faces just light up. I, I can just see the joy in you when, when I tell you these things. It's a source of comfort. It's a source of joy. It's a delight that we have that, that God is at work. God is taking what we do here in this little church out in the bush and God is using it to grow the faith in others, in, in people who we don't even know. Now, I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage every one of us, whether it's you guys who are sitting here in this hall or whether it's people who are listening to the podcast, or whether it's people watching the video, or hello, Bonjean Church of Christ, just probably a few months' time you'll be watching this in your church and listening to it. But I want to encourage every one of you to contact a person who has helped you to grow in Christ. I want you to tell them what God's been doing in you. I want you to share with them how their ministry has helped you to grow. Now, this might be something that happened decades ago. But then I want you to share with them what God's been doing in your life now. And I want you to share with them how, how God is using you now to minister to others. And I can guarantee you, when you share that with them, that's going to just fill them with joy. That's going to fill them with comfort. And, and it's probably something they need. You know, usually when we think of some super Christian people who we really look up to and people who have really helped us in our walk with God, we sort of think, oh, they don't need any encouragement. Guess what? They do. They do. And um, you don't know how they might be doing it tough, like Paul was doing it tough and like Titus was doing it tough. And so you can share that with them and you will be a source of comfort. You will be a source of joy to that person. But it won't stop there. Because you know what? I'll say, hey, guess what? Somebody who I haven't seen for four or five years rang me up the other day and shared this. And they'll share it with somebody else. And that just shares the joy. Joy and encouragement just keeps on growing. Have you ever noticed that some people have a real gift of encouragement. I bet you can think of somebody who's been a real encouragement to you. Um, and some people just are just always encouraging. Well, we can all do that a bit, right? Some of us have a spiritual gift of encouragement, but all of us can encourage by doing something as simple as what I just suggested. Something you mightn't realise is people in ministry, or should I say especially people in ministry, need the comfort and the joy of God. And how do they get it? 
God does it through you. Christians, comfort Christians. Who's going to comfort your brother and sister in Christ? You are. And let's never fall into the mindset that that's the minister's job um, because we pay the minister to, to go and care for people. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We together are the body of Christ and we care for one another. Christians comfort Christians. Right, so that's the first heading. The second heading is godly sorrow or grief versus worldly sorrow or grief. And in the context of today's reading, this is a very specific sort of sorrow or grief or pain that we're talking about here. We're talking about the sorrow or grief or pain that's caused by guilt or shame. Uh, I remember a, a scene from The Simpsons. Yes, I know some of you, and I've just said that. You've, your um, take on me has just gone from here down to here, that I've watched an episode of The Simpsons. Um, but in this episode, Marge volunteers to do a bit of work for the church. And this frees up Reverend Lovejoy to do a bit of reading and extra study. And he tells Marge after the fact how wonderful it's been because he's managed to discover a form of shame that's gone unused for the last 700 years. And for many people, that's actually the view that they have of the church and preaching and what it does to people. Right? So they reckon that preachers like me we have the ambition to get up here and heap as much shame onto people as what we possibly can. And if I could possibly give a message that's going to make everybody feel absolutely wretched about themselves, then I've done my job. That's what, that's what some people think that the gospel is all about. But then, of course, there's the opposite of that. There's um, feel-good churches where they actually strive to remove every sense of guilt and shame from the Bible and from their messages. And basically, instead of preaching the gospel, they become a place of social therapy where people just get told, oh, cheer up, you're wonderful just as you are, and God has a wonderful purpose for your life. And, and they, they appeal to our vanity. So when it comes to guilt and shame, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends on what we do with it. It depends on whether we process guilt and shame in a godly way or, or whether we process it in a worldly way. Paul says in verse 10, for godly sorrow or grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Right? So what we're talking about here is a consciousness of sin that fills us with guilt and shame such that we are so ashamed of what we've done. We are so sorry about our sinful actions. And if we process that in a godly way, that sorrow or grief leads us to repentance. Where we pray, God, I am so sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. And God, please help me not to do that anymore. And God, please help me to, 
to make restitution for what I've done. Help me to be reconciled to those who I've hurt. And guess what? God forgives us, which is why Paul says that it leads to salvation without regret. And I stand before you today and I testify to you that I personally have no regret for the depth of guilt and shame that I have sometimes felt. There have been times when I have been so grieved because of my guilt that I was carrying. Now, why do I have no regrets about this? It's because that guilt and that feeling of shame is the very thing that leads me to repent. And when we repent, with that comes salvation. And even as a Christian, um, I grieve still with guilt and shame for things that I've done because uh, this might come as a surprise to you, but I still sin. And when I do things wrong and hurt people, I am filled with grief and shame. And in tears, I repent. You see, Paul wrote a really harsh letter to that church in Corinth. He says in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. But then he sort of did regret it in a bit of a way because because he knew that by him writing these harsh things to them, it it grieved them. But then he explains himself. He says in verse 9, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because of what they did with that grief. But because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. Now, I was quite disturbed the other day. Um, Whenever there's a visiting preacher or a visiting church, whatever, we get a fair few of them coming into St. George um, at various times. And so people want to come and do something in the bush, which is really good. Uh, But whenever we've got them coming either to our church or other churches and, and we get invited along to their things and... I always like to go and read their statement of belief of either their ministry or the church that they're coming from. And I was reading a statement of belief of a particular ministry that's coming to town shortly. And one of its articles of belief says this, says those who are in Christ should have no consciousness of sin. Rather, they should have an overwhelming sense of righteousness. And that's quite wrong. And it's the opposite of what Paul is showing this church here. Paul wrote this letter to a church. He's writing this letter to Christians and Paul is rejoicing because when he'd written written the previous letter to them, highlighting their sin to them, they became conscious of that sin and they were grieved because of their sin. And so they repented because of their sin. Those who are in Christ should absolutely be be aware of sin. We should absolutely be conscious of our own sin because that is what makes us repent. And then once we've repented, by faith, we know the guilt is gone. And that, that is when we have an overwhelming sense of righteousness. 
Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What does that look like? I thought a fair bit about this. I think it can come in several forms. I'll give you a few few examples. One form of worldly grief over sin is what I'm going to call self-righteous indignation. Right? Now, I've used this example a number of times over the last six months, and I was going to try and think of another one, but I thought, no, I'll just use it again, because it's a really good one, and it was actually in the media again this week. And it's one of our favourite sporting heroes, Israel Folau. So Israel Folau, on social media a number of months ago, um, posted a thing which said that a whole heap, it listed a whole heap of sins that if we don't repent of these things and turn to Jesus, then we're going to go to hell. And the list of sins pretty much included everybody on it. I know there's stuff on that list that I've done. So he was telling me that if I don't repent of these sins and turn to Jesus, then I'm going to go to hell. Now, I know I was on that list. Was anyone else on that list? A few nods. Some of you weren't. Okay, Um, denial. Uh, But how did the world respond to that? Well, it was met with somewhat self-righteous indignation. Who do you think you are? What gives you the right to publicly say things like that, to tell me, who gives you the right to decide what's right and what's wrong? How dare you tell me that I'm going to hell? Some people said, your list is outdated. Those things aren't sin. But basically it was, how dare you? Now that is one form of worldly grief because there is an inner conviction going on here, right? So God's righteous law has been revealed. And the problem was people understood it very well. They understood very well the message, repent and turn to Jesus or bear the consequences. Or to put it unpalatably, turn or burn. And and it's obviously affected them. We can tell from their outrage. But they didn't respond with godly grief, did they? So there was a conviction of sin happening there but they hide their sorrow and they hide their grief with anger and self-righteous indignation. There is no repentance. There is no salvation. It leads to death. A second form of worldly grief is guilt without repentance. Now, when I was preparing for today, I, I went searching for a bit of statistics on guilt. Uh, How many people carry guilt? How many people feel guilty? And I found one article from Psychology Today website, and it quoted one study that found that people generally feel guilty for about five hours a week, right? So if you're portioning up your week, what am I going to do this week? I'm going to do this, this, and this. Make sure you allow five hours for feeling guilty. So apparently on average, if you add up all of the times during the week that somebody feels guilty, it adds up to about five hours. I'm not sure how you come up with that, 
Um, how do you get statistics like that? Do you do a survey? Um, how many times did you feel guilty this week? And how long for each time? I don't know how, do, how that happens. But then it went on to tell us that, that guilt, it makes us hard for us to think straight. It, it makes us reluctant to enjoy life. Um, it can make some people self-punish. Um, it can make us resentful towards people. It can lead us into depression and keep us in depression. And, and this is my take on it. Guilt can become this weight that bears down on a person and it fills them with torment and depression and sadness. Now, the thing is, there's a cure to this. All you need to cure guilt is forgiveness. And the gospel is that Jesus died to set us free from this very guilt. But, but they don't turn to Jesus and they don't repent. And so they don't experience the freedom that comes with forgiveness. And so the guilt just continues to grow. And they just keep feeling guilty and it just keeps growing more and more guilt. Guilt without repentance is a worldly sorrow. Sorry, uh, yes, is a worldly sorrow that leads to death. But then, even for us Christians, there's times when we are forgiven, but we don't feel forgiven. Now, in our heads, we, we know that no sin is too big for Jesus. We know that, don't we? Can we have an agreement on that? No sin is too big for Jesus to forgive. We know that. Now, we know this in our heads, and that all makes sense, but that is until it becomes a very personal thing. We've felt guilty, we've grieved because of our sin, we've repented and we've asked for forgiveness, and in our heads we know that we're forgiven, but we still feel guilty. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Now, sometimes that might be a sign that, hey, maybe your repentance means that you actually have to go and repent to somebody else as well. It's not just always a matter of just repenting to God. Sometimes we have to repent to the person we've hurt. But even so, we, there are times when you just continue to feel this guilt. And I want to say to you today that guilt is a good thing but only until it's done its job guilt is what leads us to repentance and then we're forgiven but but if i continue to feel guilty after i've already been forgiven well that's when guilt becomes a very bad thing it becomes a crippling thing it becomes something which really knocks us about in our faith you see satan is always the accuser. Satan wants to tell you that you're not good enough. Satan wants you to feel that you're not forgiven. And he's the one who says, how can you possibly be forgiven? Your sins were so bad. Well, that wasn't just any run-of-the-mill bad thing you did. That was particularly bad. That's Satan. And that's a form of worldly sorrow because it's not based on truth. Godly sorrow knows that we're forgiven and so our sorrows are turned to joy. 
there are no regrets. And this is, the, this is the beautiful thing. We come through this period where we feel absolutely wretched and guilty and we repent and God forgives us. Oh, what joy. What joy. What beauty. We're free and we're filled with praise for God. And so it, it leads us to more joy than what we've ever had before. In Christ, there is no sin which is too bad for him to forgive. And so in Christ, we are forgiven. And if you feel like you're not forgiven, guess what? Your feelings are wrong. You know, sometimes we put too much trust in our feelings. Oh, I feel this. Therefore, I'm going to do it. Well, what about when your feelings are wrong? I don't feel forgiven. Well, guess what? Your feelings are wrong. You are forgiven. Sometimes we have to let our faith override our feelings. Yes, you might still be feeling guilty. Well, that's Satan trying to rob you of your joy. And don't let him do it. And sometimes other Christians might want to rob you of your joy. And sometimes you might feel that other Christians are looking down at their noses at you because they know what you've done in the past. Although actually, it's probably more often non-Christians. Non-Christians might look, look down their nose at you and go, look at you, tell, calling yourself a Christian. I know the things that you've done in the past. Now, the fact of the matter is that my wicked past was dealt with on the cross. And it is no more. And your wicked past was dealt with on the cross. And it is no more. Right? So I might confess my sins to Jesus and ask for forgiveness but then the next day I'm still feeling a little bit guilty and I might say, Jesus, do you know that sin that I confessed to you yesterday? It's still... And Jesus goes, no. What sin? I don't remember any sin. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, I'm just amazed at that, at that verse. Um, how far is the east from the west? It's just eternal, isn't it? Now, if, if they had said how far the north is from the south, we've got the, that's a finite amount, isn't it? North pole, south pole. That's, how, that's a measurable amount. But east to west, that, there is no limit. It just goes on and on. And it just amazes me. Like we, we grew up knowing about flat earth theory. Well... In the Bible, there it is, right there. Right back then, they knew it wasn't a flat earth. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, is that because God's so old he's got Alzheimer's? I don't think so. God, there's a few things that God will forget. And that's the sins that we confess. He forgives them. And he doesn't remember them anymore. And at times, every one of us, and this is something I can promise you, every one of us will grieve 
because we're filled with guilt and shame. And it'll happen to us again and again. And what we do with that guilt and shame determines whether we're going to live in joyful freedom or whether we're going to carry guilt and sorrow that leads to death. It's strange, you know, unbelievers point their fingers at Christianity and they say, ah, it's all about guilt and shame. But it's exactly the opposite. Christ is the only way to be free of guilt and shame. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And that's why we're joyful. No regrets. Let's be joyful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in your name. Lord, we have done many, many things that have led to so many regrets, but we have no regret. Even for the times of bitter sorrow, when we've been filled with guilt and remorse, Lord, we want to thank you for these times because they were your Holy Spirit leading us to repentance that we may experience salvation without regret. And Lord, I pray for any person listening to this today who's feeling great sorrow because of unconfessed sin. Lord, I ask that you would introduce them to godly sorrow, that they would repent and that they would experience salvation without regret. And Lord, I pray for those who are forgiven, but they don't feel forgiven. Lord, I ask that you would give them faith and that you would restore their joy and that they would know the forgiveness. Lord, help them to celebrate the freedom that we already have in your name. Amen.